so tell me, what's the, okay, in, in case the person who gave it to you is in the room, be, be discreet, but what's the worst Christmas gift you ever received? The deal is, Matthew 2 tells us a story of the guys that kind of got this gift exchange thing going in, um, in, in the early part of the gospel. And you know their story, but we'll try to uncover a, a little bit more of it. Um, we can kind of get some tips on giving from these men. Now, were there three wise men? We don't really know. There could have been two. There could have been four. I mean, you know, we call them, it could be that we get the, you know, we three kings from the song. I'm going to refer to that in a little bit too. But um, so let me give you some background on Matthew 2, Joe. It is a kind of a perfect number. And the, the reason three comes about is because there were three gifts given. They assume all of them had a gift. Um, but there's no other reason to assume that. Oh, other than any of you ever sing in a mall in the night visitor? Anybody ever in that little opera thing? And they're, you know, they even give them names in that one. So, well, um, we're going to learn about a little bit about uh, a guy that is not famous, but he's infamous. His name is Herod the Great. I read a, I read a uh, paper on the plane yesterday that identified him as Harold the Great. Sorry, his name was not Harold. His name was Herod. Uh, that cost him a point or two. But um, Hark the Herald. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, he was the first of Ro the Roman puppet kings over Israel. Now, it's interesting. Herod, even though he was the king of Israel, as, we, as the New Testament dawns, he was not Israeli. He was not uh, a Jew. He was not from even the, even the northern tribes. He was, his his uh, descent was half Arabic and half what we know as Idumean. He's sometimes called an Idumean, which means that the other side of his life was, um, um, he, instead of being a descendant of Jacob, he was a descendant of Esau. An Idumean, which is kind of interesting to me. That was his closest connection, um, from my research at least, with uh, the nation. Um, he professed a commitment to Judaism, but his racial background, his wildly excessive lifestyle, his absolute loyalty to Rome, led a lot of Jews to question his true beliefs. But they liked him, or they endured him, I guess, because he built a lot of great projects that's why he became known as Herod the Great. He rebuilt Jerusalem. He, he uh, uh, certainly improved uh, the temple. You can read even the Gospels where Jesus and the disciples talk about how magnificent the temple was. This wasn't the original temple that Solomon built. This is kind of, it's kind of been rebuilt and annexed and all that stuff under, a lot of it at least, under Herod the Great. Now, by the way, because you know this, he also built a pretty nice palace for himself uh, elsewhere. So um, that, that wouldn't surprise you at all. Um, he was profoundly paranoid, and that's going to factor into our lesson in Matthew 2. Profoundly paranoid. Uh, one historian says it was safer to be uh, Herod's dog than to be a family member. He surrounded himself with a security guard and often used those people to, um, to 
to wipe out anybody who might have some kind of a claim to the throne, even his own sons. What a nice guy. Herod the Great was. Well, that's our guy. He's not exactly a hero in this story, but he certainly factors hugely in it. Now, we're going we're gonna to pick up the story in this setting of paranoia that takes place as the, this story begins. Steve Blair, can I get you to read the first two verses of Matthew 2? Okay, now, I want us to go a couple places. Who will go for us over to 1 Samuel 17, 12? Who will do that? Thank you, John. And I need somebody else to go to 2 Samuel, um, Samuel 7, and I want us to read there, verse 13. 2 Samuel 7, 13. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. And then would somebody go to Daniel? I'm just going to, we're going to read a couple places in Daniel. Thank you, Sally. Okay, uh, Sally, if you'll start with Daniel one twenty. Now, here's the story. God is in the process, as this story dawns, of making good on a promise that he made to David ten centuries before. Okay, David uh, reigned around 1000 B.C., all right, somewhere around there. So ten centuries before, he made a promise to David. Let's read about them. John, would you read that first passage here, 1 Samuel 17, 12? Now David was the son of a Ephraimite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judea. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Okay, now, David's dad was Jesse. He was an Ephrathite. John, you did a good job with that word. That's kind of another name for Bethlehem uh, uh, or for that area, okay? He, he's a Bethlehemite. So if you, today even, you might call Jerusalem the city of David, but the town of David is Bethlehem. Now, so God is in the process of making good on a promise. Let's read about that promise. Uh, um, city is a youth. It's got 2 second, second Samuel seven thirteen. Okay, you remember, we actually studied this a month or two ago. God makes a promise to David that I would, remember David wanted to build God a house, and he said, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to build you a house. And he was talking about a dynasty, and he's promised it. So now, now God is in the process of fulfilling this promise to David here. Uh, ten centuries, a thousand years or so after he makes the promise. So we read about the days of King Herod here at the beginning of, of the chapter, and it says in the second part of verse 1, it says that magi came. Now, let, let's talk about who the magi were. Um, the word magi is actually not a translation, it's a transliteration. So it, it kind of, um, it comes over from the Greek language. It was used quite a bit um, uh, um, in the language and in, in kind of culture, we read about uh, the closest word, and it's the place from where we get the, the English word magician, okay, magi, magician. Um, we read about some magi in the book of Daniel. Now, here's where I'll just 
do a little short shameless plug. We'll be there in Daniel 1 when we come back from the holiday break on the 7th of December. Who's got Daniel? Sally, is that you? Daniel 120. Okay, the word magi is used here to describe Daniel and his three friends. Now, I can always call their Babylonian names, but I can't call their Israeli names. You remember them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're given those names. Actually, those are their Babylonian names, I think. The, uh, the Hebrew names are in the verse before where Sally read, and I won't make you pronounce them because they're kind of tough. But, but uh, So those four guys were called what? They, they literally were, were included in the group of magi in Babylon, okay, while, while the nation was in exile. But when they compared Daniel and his three friends to the other magi, they outpaced them all. I was with a, a new little friend Thursday night, and we talked about, um, he's, he's a general in the National Guard, and he talked about going to Babylon, can you imagine that? He was in the desert war. He was there in Babylon. That's kind of where Daniel plied his trade. And uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the name that was in my head? Horshack. No, that's not the guy. <laughs> um, all right, so these, these magi, here's the word that goes in your blank. They were mysterious holy men, the ones who came to visit. They probably were Persian from descent. They were experts. They were the smartest men of their time. The, these people from this kind of a, uh, of a group, they're experts in astrology, but they're also experts, Rhonda, interestingly, in medicine and in history and in politics. They came, the Bible says here, they came from the East. So what you need to know and what Herod needed to know is these weren't Roman emissaries because Rome was West. These came from uh, probably Persia or even Iraq, uh, to, to uh, visit the, ki the new king. And um, uh, some think that over there, they would have had contact with some exiles, some Jewish exiles at some point, and learned a little bit, bit about this. They, some also think that they were servants in a royal court like Daniel and his three friends were, and maybe that that court hears about the birth of a king, and they say, why don't you go visit him? Now, did they learn about the birth of that new king from, uh, from the Magi themselves, having seen the star? That, that may be part of the story, too. So, here we go. These experts, these mysterious holy men, come to visit, and they stop in Jerusalem. Why? where kings hang out, right? That's where Harold the king is, for one, one of the, right? Yeah. I would love for you to call him the rest of your life Harold. I think that'd be fine. That'd be just kinda, if there are any Heralds in here, that we're, that's no denigration of your name. It's just, that's where Herod the Great was. That's where the throne room was. That's where the palace was. That's where the temple was. So they go to Jerusalem, and in verse 2, uh, they have rightly concluded, and they say this to Herod, they have rightly concluded that uh, this heavenly disturbance that they've seen, this star that they've seen, uh, 
means the Messiah has been born. He's come. That's Cindy, can, Sally, is it you that I had in Daniel? Can I get you to go back there and go to chapter 2, verse 44 and 45? Daniel is interpreting the king in his day, interpreting a dream, and he's talking about a king to come henceforth. All right? And he says, a king is coming, and it will, he will be the king of kings. Kind of basically the idea here. Could it be that there's, in the annals of uh, Babylonian literature, for instance, there is this scripture, this prediction, and these men have studied that. And say, maybe it's time. From 700 years or so before when Daniel was in their land. Okay, so you've got these men that rightly conclude that, okay, we remember, we've read somewhere that the Hebrews who used to live here thought they had a king coming. And then they begin to see this heavenly disturbance and they, and they kind of connect the dots. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time. And so at great risk... And at great expense, they take off and, um, and seek this one to be born. Now, I uh, had a moment of incredible irony yesterday at 5.30 in the morning. Okay, I'm at, I'm at, a hotel, I'm at, I'm at, a, uh, I'm at an airport in Jackson, Mississippi. And they're playing Christmas carols overhead. Which I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. Uh, that doesn't happen much in these days. That in a public place owned by the public, a public building that they would play. And it wasn't, they weren't playing, you know, Santa Baby or I'll Have a Blue Blue Christmas. They were playing Christmas carols. I'm listening, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this lesson and I'm hearing We Three Kings from the east of Orient R. You remember that? And at the same time, I just, you got to stick with me here for just a minute. I'm watching a, a, a nicely dressed woman uh, in a burqa being kind of mistreated in the TSA line. I mean, they're going through all the stuff. Uh, they put her behind a screen. You know, I mean, they're, it's just interesting as I'm thinking, I'm hearing this song about three wise people from the east who come seeking the Messiah. And here's a person on our land from the east who's kind of being mistreated. Hey, do you see how ironic that is, kind of that moment in time? Uh, do you know, Ellie, you and I have talked about it. I think it's you and I have talked about it. Um, it it's one of those guys, one of you guys I've been talking to. I'm talking about how Arabic people are coming to the U.S., do you know what they're looking for? They're looking for Jesus. They, he, read about this. Google it if you'd like. You'll read about it. 
Uh, Arabic people are having Jesus revealed to them. He comes to so hundreds of these stories. I came here looking for Jesus. I met some here in this church years ago who said, we came, they were, they were working as cooks in a Greek restaurant in town. They said, we came to the U.S. to look for Jesus. He came to us in a dream. By the way, that's not isolated. Hundreds and hundreds of those stories. Here are men from the East who have had a disturbance and they come seeking the real king. Now, As we read on, the current king is nervous. Remember, he's paranoid. Okay? Somebody start at three. Sally, you mind to go to verse three and read down to eight? Okay, now, this reference, okay, these guys don't know what's going on other than they're in Herod's palace and they say, we've heard a new king is born. Herod's face turns ashen. Uh, what? Because why? Because he's paranoid to start with. He's worried about somebody taking over his place anyway. It's interesting, you can read, I put the reference to John eleven forty eight. The same kind of thing happens when Jesus is an adult uh, to, the, uh, to the chief priests and all those who, who are afraid. This guy is saying too many things. He's going to mess up the system. Herod's got a thing going on with Rome, and he's afraid any of this talk is going to mess up the system. Uh, and so, any reference to a new king disturbs the current king. Okay? It just kind of messes with his head. So he calls, and by the way, I get the sense here, um, I'm, I'm trying to read this with different eyes and, and not just assuming I know everything about it. So I was trying to read it with different eyes this year. Uh, in verse 2, I'm, I'm sorry, in verse 4, uh, it says he gathered the chief priests and the scribes. Now, what I think may have happened is he said, give me a minute. Okay, to the guys in the throne room. Hang on just a minute. Uh, you know, get him a Coke. I'll be right back. Okay, and he goes and calls the chief priests and scribes. So he calls to him here. I'm, I'm asking the question on your outline. Who did he call? He called the people who should know about this stuff. And for what purpose did he call them? Okay, remember he's got guys in, in his throne room saying, we came to see the newborn king, and he says, don't know anything about this. I'm going to ask the guys who are supposed to know something about this. And so he goes into an anteroom of some kind and says, guys, there's this entourage out here. They're looking for a newborn king. And he asks them what question? 
Where is he to be born who is born king of the Jews? Something like that, right? Now, I think it's very, very interesting here. As you read verse 5 and 6, and as Sally read it a minute ago, those who should know give the correct answer. Okay, those who should have known, chief priests, scribes, the holy guys in Israel, okay, Herod doesn't know, probably. But they say, he says to them, okay, there's no king born here that I'm aware of. But is, if there's a king to be born, where is he supposed to be born? And the chief priests and scribes say to him, um, uh, you know, be precinct of Jerusalem, right? No, what do they say? Bethlehem. In fact, they quote verbatim Micah 5.2. He's supposed to be born in David's town because he's going to be the son of David. Okay, so the, there's kind of that idea here. They should have known the answer, uh, uh, both in 2 Samuel and Micah, kind of this idea from, from five, 600 years before the king is born. It has been said, they've studied it, they know it, they know someday it's going to happen, the, the king is going to be born, and they give the correct answer in Bethlehem. And so, look at verse 7. All right, look at verse 7. I have never caught this. I've never caught this. Um, the king calls then the magi secretly. I've never caught that word in there. This is not a public forum, okay? So in my head, he says, he goes back in and he says, guys, I think I've got an answer for you, but we can't talk about it here. Meet me at Starbucks. <laughs> they would be into Starbucks, wouldn't they? Don't you think? <laughs> I, I think. I think. So they meet at Starbucks. They're over in the corner in one of those little things, you know. And uh, uh, the guys are kind of obvious because they get the big turbans going. You know, okay, but and the camel parked outside. I get that. But by the way, did you? Have anybody, any of you been on Facebook with George? He's in the camel business again in Wichita. Have you, have you seen that? He's in. He's got a. He was leading a camel around. I guess they used one in the church. Um, so they meet at Starbucks and Herod says, okay, here's what I need you guys to do for me. Here's what they've said. Here's what my wise men have said. And, but in verse seven, he asked them to do something. What does he ask them to do? Find the baby and come back and tell me, cause I want to worship him too. Liar. Uh, it's interesting, in, in the process of all this, uh, I just happened to be reading through the book of Jeremiah in my quiet time this week, and I came to chapter 31, and it's so funny because there's all these wonderful promises in 29 and 30 and 31 about uh, the coming king, and then it stops at 31.15 and says, there's a voice heard, Rachel weeping for her children. That's a reference to what King Herod does in Matthew 2 in about verse um, 16 and verse 13. Let me know, okay? And by the way, somewhere along this way, he says to them, uh, when did you first see this star? So he begins to do the calculations. Okay, how old? He determines then by all that that the that the baby is a child 
not a newborn, going back to the time that the, that the star appeared, this king's search is driven again, guys, by paranoia. There's the word. It's driven by paranoia. And he says the challenge to his throne has got to be eliminated. And so he does all these hideous, heinous things. Again, out of his fear and paranoia in those things. He is, he's got to eliminate the rival here. Let the Magi locate the child for him. That won't arouse suspicion uh, if there's some rebels involved in this thing. Herod's stated desire to worship serves to reinforce the Magi's understanding that the one they seek must be more than an Arab parent of, of an ordinary political king. This is something new. This is something different. They would know how old he is dating back to when they first saw the stars disturbing. Probably that's the, announcing the birth. It took them months to get there. So the baby could be anywhere from a few months old to a couple of years old. There's a lot of debate over that. And so they leave. And what you've got to catch here, all right, Cindy, can I get you to go back to verse 9 and read verse 9 through 12? I want you to imagine what they're thinking when they leave Herod's palace and they're headed to Bethlehem because Herod's wise men have told them that's where the baby is to be born. I think they are without hope. I think it's like, how are we going to find him? We know Bethlehem's not a very big place, but how in the world are we going to find him? You know, they're, they're not happy that they haven't found him in Jerusalem. And they're probably a little nervous by the treatment they got from Herod. All this is real secretive. What in the world is going on? Okay. And starting in verse 9, they leave and something fantastic happens once again. Cindy, read 9 down through 12. Okay, they heard the king, they went on their way, the six-mile trip from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. And when they got out in the night sky, guess what they saw? <laughs> saw the star again. Now that implies that the star had not been there. They got into Judea, they stopped at Jerusalem because it's the obvious place. And so, God once again leads them to the real destination. Can I ask you? Uh, Matthew seems to imply here that the, that the Magi depart Jerusalem and they suddenly see the same star they'd seen earlier. And scientists have argued this for the last 20 centuries. But somehow God continues to lead these kings in their pursuit of the real king. So, help me here. We've talked about the kings in Daniel. We've talked about these at least three kings, we think. And we've talked about King Harold. 
Who's your king? That's a really critical question. Where, where are you getting your cues for life? <laughs> Who are you consulting? Now, one of the things we've got to kind of understand here, these guys were not Jews. Arabs? Maybe even pagans. God led them to another country to find the true king in the right place at the right time. My guess is, after verse 12, I think I know who their king was. Who's your king? Uh, do you realize how... I, I don't want that in any that question to sound at all silly. All of us have got to come to terms with who the real king is. They did. Uh, God once again leads them to the real destination, to the true destination. And when they go outside and they see the star that has now reappeared, a thrill of hope. They have their hope renewed. I love this little card. Have you read the story back of the card? Give this to somebody or 15 somebodies, you know, for next week. Their hope is renewed. There's, they come out of the palace saying, man, that guy's weird. What is his agenda? What are we going to do? He says the baby's down here. He wants us to report back to them uh, where this little boy's going to be. Guys, I don't know about that, but how are we going to find him? And boom. Their hope is renewed. Guess who I heard sing Cantique de Noel this morning? Michael Crawford. Do what? No, she can't sing that high. Sorry, pal. I, I hate to burst you. I did hear her sing Away in the Manger again this morning, which I just love. Not Tammy Wynette. Michael Crawford. Do you know who Michael Crawford is? The Phantom. If you've never heard Michael Crawford sing Oh Holy Night, you've got to figure that one out. <sighs> the star was brightly shining. A thrill of hope. That's what this card is about. Now, so where do they find him? They don't find him in a stable. Sorry, Marty. I know you loved the little video last week, you know, with Marty in the stable. Marty in the barn. You remember that? It was very cool. Didn't find him in a stable. The shepherds had found him there. It's probably months later. They found him in a house. You see, it says they went into the house. They found him in a house somewhere in Bethlehem. Now, and they gave him gifts. They gave him foreign gifts. Things that they would have gotten from the east that aren't kind of typical to Israel. Precious gifts, including more gold than Joseph and Mary have ever seen or will see in their lifetime. It will help finance a trip to Egypt because they, Joseph is warned in a dream after these guys leave, Herod is on a rampage. You better get the child out of here. And he does. And they come back and settle in 
not the little town of Bethlehem. They come back and settle in the little town of Nazareth. And in Galilee is where Jesus would grow up, which is where Mary and Joseph are actually from. So, God prefers here to reveal himself through spokespersons whose messages become scripture. The Magi seemed not to have access to the book of Micah to know where the child was going to be born. So God spoke to them in a language they could understand, in this case, in astronomy. Uh, the wise men seem the least likely category of people to play a part in the history of the story of Jesus' birth, yet their willingness to follow God's lead in the face of great peril make them spectators to the greatest event in history. I have thought about if Herod's as paranoid as he is, why didn't he have these guys murdered on the spot? And yet, they go and they see. They're foreign. They're Arabic, probably Persian. They're scientists unlikely witnesses to the birth of the king. But they meet him nonetheless. The Magi probably had not been sitting around in their place. Uh, by the way, the best depiction of this that I've ever seen, and we've kind of made this a family uh, Christmas Eve thing. We won't get to do it this year because we won't be there until after Christmas, but is watching um, the Nativity story, really good telling of the story. And these, the, the story part of the of the wise men and how they found the stars, pretty wonderful. They're not just sitting around saying, hey guys, let's go check out Jerusalem and see if a new king's been born. That, that's not how it started. It was a celestial sign that impelled them on their journey and sent them westward. If you can think about it, they were on the trip of a lifetime. What's your trip of a lifetime? My final question is, what is there so compelling that it drives you onward? What do you find in your life that's so intriguing, so compelling, so wonderful that every day, day after day, year after year, month after month, you continue to seek after it? I can only think of one thing. I can only think of one king. I can only think of one story that is worthy of that kind of all-out search. And back to my quiet time this week, Jeremiah 29, he says, you will seek him and find him when you seek him with all your heart. Don't give him half your heart. Don't just on Sundays seek him. It needs to be a daily search. It needs to be a lifetime search. I believe that because they found him and because they worshipped him and because they gave gifts to him, I've got to believe when they returned to the east, they weren't the same men as when they came before. Because anybody who bows at the manger changes. Did you know that? Anybody who bows at the feet of the Christ child, whether, whether in a stable or in a home or at an altar or in your living room or at Starbucks, comes away from that experience radically and forever changed. What compels you? What search compels you? Can I tell you? 
I've been at this since I was eight, 54 years. You do the math. And I am as intrigued today as I've ever been. I'm as compelled today as I've ever been. I know him better today than I've ever known him. And I want to know him better than I've ever known him. Merry Christmas.